Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 12, Exodus chapters 13 and 14. Last week, we viewed a documentary film that brought together information that's been known for centuries, but with newer findings that frankly shoot a lot of holes in the traditional route of the Exodus. Now, we're certainly not going to solve in this class what learned scholars over the ages have been, in, have been unable to. All right. However, as the Red Sea crossing and the route of the Exodus is one of the most fascinating events in the Bible, I also don't want to skip over it. So we will discuss that further today, but let's continue with Exodus 13 before then. Let's reread the last few verses of it as we get to that interesting part about the route of the Exodus. So I'm going to start reading today from Exodus 13, chapter, uh, uh, verse 17, Exodus 13, verse 17, to the end. After Pharaoh had let the people go, God did not guide them to the highway that goes through the land of the uh, Philistine, all right, the Philistines, because it was close by. God thought that the people upon seeing war might change their minds and return to Egypt. Rather, God led the people by a roundabout route through the desert by the Sea of Suf. The people of Israel went up from the land of Egypt fully armed. Moses took the bones of Yosef with him, for Yosef had made the people of Israel swear an oath when he said, God will certainly remember you. You're to carry my bones with you away from here. They traveled from Sukkot, set up camp in Etam at the edge of the desert, and Adonai went ahead of them in a column of cloud during the daytime to lead them on their way, and at night in a column of fire to give them light. Thus they could travel both day and night. Neither the column of cloud by day nor the column of cloud at night went away from in front of the people. Verse 18 is the beginning of the real controversy surrounding Exodus. Because it says that instead of taking the more direct, well-marked way called the way of the Philistines to the land of Canaan, God directed them to take a route that headed towards, depending on your version, either the Red Sea or the Reed Sea. Now, the Hebrew word for this body of water is Yam Suf or Yam Suf. Okay, Yam means sea, Suf right, means reeds, papyrus, so the Sea of Reeds. Now, in the original Hebrew text, the wording is Sea of Reeds. However, in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, the words are Red Sea. So this is partly where the controversy comes from. Further, verse 18 says, literally, that the people would go on a roundabout way to Canaan. And this route would be the way of the wilderness. Now, follow me here, because this is the first step in helping to unravel the mystery of the route of the Exodus. Just as there was this north-south, 1,000-mile long 
superhighway of trade and travel that followed along the Mediterranean Sea coast, formerly called the Way of the Philistines, there was a 200-mile um, east-west trade route formally called the Way of the Wilderness. Okay. The Hebrew word for way in both names, the way of the Philistines, the way of the wilderness, is derech. derech. And it means road or path. Now, why so many translators choose to make correctly the way of the Philistines as the formal name for a known trade route, but refuse to accept the way of the wilderness as the formal name for this well-known east-west trade route across the Sinai is somewhat of a mystery. Okay. Why would so many excellent scholars intentionally make the phrase the way of the wilderness out to be some kind of general direction? You know, it's in the way of the wilderness. It's kind of out there somewhere. Right rather than the precise name of a long-established ancient trade route. Why, why would they do that? Of course, it could be that when we recognize the rather blatant fact that sits right here before our eyes, all right, is that it would destroy the possibility of the traditional Mount Sinai way down here if this was the route up here. Now, in verse 19, we get this very poignant reminder of Israel's past. Because it states that the Israelites took with them Joseph's bones. More accurately, they took with them Joseph's mummified body. Okay? Because Genesis told us that he was buried in the Egyptian way. That was, of course, mummification. That was the Egyptian way. But this also brings a closure to the Israelites' time in Egypt. Okay? Joseph was the beginning of that time. Joseph laid the groundwork for Israel to come to Egypt, at first for sheer survival, then to multiply into this large nation. However, in Joseph's handling of the seven years of abundant crops and then the seven years of acute food shortage, that famine, the foundation would also be laid for the hatred and the eventual subjugation of the Hebrew people. Recall that Joseph, in cooperation with that Semitic pharaoh that ruled Egypt when Joseph was in power, Took, Egypt, uh, took the Egyptian people's animals and their crops and then eventually their land and even their independence, took it away from them in payment for the stored grain necessary to survive those years of great famine. But jo uh, Joseph's family, Jacob and all of his sons, prospered. And they did quite well during this period of devastation. While the average Egyptian was suffering and losing their wealth and freedom, Israel was multiplying and prosperous. That bitter jealousy 
of that incident, along with, of course, the Exodus itself, has never, even to our day, subsided in Egypt. Okay. Now, as written down in Genesis 50, 25, Joseph made his family promise to bring him, meaning his corpse, out of Egypt when they left because he believed God's promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He believed that Israel would be in Egypt only as sojourners, not as permanent citizens. He knew it would be a long sojourn, four generations equating to about 400 years in the days of the patriarchs. But he also absolutely trusted that someday, as promised by Jehovah, they would leave. And he wanted his remains to go with them. Here it states that's exactly what they did. Now we're told that after stopping in a place called Sukkot, where they made and ate unleavened bread, they moved on to a place called Etham. All right, another location that's not been positively identified, nor is a distance between Sukkot and Etam stated. And we're told that Yehovah went before them by day in a column of cloud and by night fire emitted from that cloud to light their path. Now understand, unlike what some movies claim and is often implied in sermons and Sunday school lessons, the Lord was not so much acting like a tour guide or a scout. He wasn't taking the Israelites towards a place that they had no idea where they were going or how to get there. They knew they were going to Canaan. And the Lord told them that they couldn't take the way of the Philistines, that one route. Instead, they were to travel using the way of the wilderness, another well-known route. So the route was generally established for them before they ever left. Rather, Yehovah was their armed escort. Okay? He was guarding, protecting, defending, running interference before them. He was going to tell them when to move, when to stop, when to take a bit of a detour, when to get back onto the path. Okay? I mean, isn't that a wonderful picture? of how the Lord operates in our lives, if we'll but follow him. But we're also given another clue that we should not overlook that helps a little with the route of the Exodus. It says that the appearance of the cloud and the fire were for what reason? So they could travel by day and by night. When they first left Egypt, they moved both day and night. Why? Well, there were a couple of reasons. First, because they needed to get as far away from Egypt as fast as they could, which also lets us know that they were probably a pretty good distance before they bumped up against the Red Sea, Reed Sea, the Yom Suf. Now, these Hebrew fugitives would never have been more energetic and enthusiastic than they were immediately upon leaving Egypt. So this was the best time to put some serious distance between them and Pharaoh. And second, because it was late spring when they left, the desert wilderness was getting pretty hot. Right? And anyone who's lived in the desert knows that the best time to travel in the desert is at nighttime, right? when it's cooler, and to rest in the daytime when it's hotter. 
So let's move on now to Exodus chapter 14. Open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 14. Adonai said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn around and set up camp in front of Pahahirot, between Migdol and the sea, in front of Baal's phone, camp opposite it by the sea. Then Pharaoh will say that the people of Israel are wandering aimlessly in the countryside. The desert has closed in on them. I will make Pharaoh so hard-hearted that he will pursue them, thus I will win glory for myself at the expense of Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will realize at last that I am at an eye. The people did as he ordered. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his servants had a change of heart towards the people. They said, what have we done letting Israel stop being our slaves? So he prepared his chariots and took his people with him. He took 600 first quality chariots, as well as all the other chariots in Egypt, along with their commanders. Adonai made made Pharaoh hard-hearted, and he pursued the people of Israel as they left boldly. The Egyptians went after them, all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh with his cavalry and army, and overtook them as they were encamped by the sea, by Pi-ha-Hirot, in front of Baal's foam. As Pharaoh approached, the people of Israel looked up and saw the Egyptians right there coming after them. In great fear, the people of Israel cried out to Adonai and said to Moses, Was it because there just weren't enough graves in Egypt that you brought us out here to die in the desert? Why have you done this to us, bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we tell you in Egypt to let us alone? We'll just go on being slaves for the Egyptians. It would be better off for us to be the Egyptian slaves than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, stop being so fearful. Remain steady, and you will see how Adonai is going to save you. He will do it today. Today you have seen the Egyptians, but you will never see them again. Adonai will do battle for you. Just calm yourselves down. Adonai asked Moses, why are you crying to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift your staff, reach out your hand over the sea, and divide it in two. The people of Israel will advance into the sea on dry ground. As for me, I will make the Egyptians hard-hearted, and they will march in after them. Thus I will win glory for myself at the expense of Pharaoh and all his army, chariots, and cavalry. Then the Egyptians will realize that I am Adonai, when I have won myself glory at the expense of Pharaoh, his chariots, and his cavalry. Next, the angel of God who was going ahead of the camp of Israel, moved away and went behind them. And the column of cloud moved away from in front of them and stood behind them. It stationed itself between the camp of Egypt and the camp of Israel. There was a cloud and darkness here, but light by night there, so that one did not come near the other all night long. Moses reached his hand out over the sea, and Adonai caused the sea to go back before a strong east wind all night. He made the sea become dry land and its water was divided in two. Then the people of Israel went into the sea on the dry ground and the water walled up for them on the right and on their left. The Egyptians continued their pursuit, going after them into the sea. All the Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and cavalry, just before dawn, Adonai looked out on the Egyptian army through the column of fire and cloud and threw them into a panic. He caused the wheels of their chariots to break off so that they could move only with difficulty. The Egyptians said, Adonai is fighting for Israel against the Egyptians. 
Let's get away from them. Adonai said to Moses, Reach out your hand over the sea and the water will return and cover the Egyptians with their chariots and cavalry. Moses reached out his hand over the sea and by dawn the sea had returned to its former depth. The Egyptians tried to flee, but Adonai swept them into the sea. The water came back, covered all the chariots and cavalry of Pharaoh's army who had followed them into the sea. Not even one of them was left. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the sea with the water piled up for them on their right and their left. On that day, Adonai saved Israel from the Egyptians. Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the shore. When Israel saw the mighty deed that Adonai had performed against the Egyptians, the people feared Adonai, and they believed in Adonai and in his servant Moses. Well, after watching that video on the Exodus crossing in the mountain of God, I hope the stage is now well set for moving into the matters of chapter 14. I think enough was covered in that video that we don't have to spend too much time going over details that involve to a degree speculation anyway. Now chapter 14 opens with Jehovah giving Moses an instruction. He says, turn back and encamp at a place called Piha-Hirot, which means mouth of the channel or mouth of the gorges. And this Piha-Hirot was at the edge, right at the edge of the uh, Red Sea. Now what the plain language of these opening verses tell us is that the Israelites were heading in one direction, but then God had them turn around and backtrack somewhat and go into a different direction altogether. And what would result is that the Pharaoh heard that they were wandering aimlessly in the desert wilderness that is the Sinai Peninsula because they had turned back. He figured they were lost. First question, how is it that Pharaoh would know where it was they were going and where they were at any given time? Undoubtedly, Pharaoh had instructed the commanders of the many military outposts. Egypt operated throughout the Sinai that they were to follow the Israelites and report back. I mean, this would have been an easy task because you just don't hide a word of three million people and all their livestock all right, wandering along these dusty trails. Okay. Rest assured, Israel was not blazing a new trail. They were taking known routes. Even the detour would have been easy to detect. So as the Israelites took certainly the same route that across the Sinai that Moses used to flee from Egypt to Midian some 40 years earlier, it was a simple task for Egyptian scouts to follow and report the route of the Israelites back to Pharaoh. And reporting back to Pharaoh was accomplished in that era via smoke signals, signal fires, reflecting light off of shiny objects. No, the American Indians didn't invent that. These systems of sending messages across long distances had been in use for centuries prior to the Exodus. It would have not taken but a few hours for a scout following the Israelites to have had his message relayed and put into the hands of Pharaoh. 
Okay. Now, what we need to understand is, first, as far as Pharaoh knew, Israel was only going to be gone for three days. Call that? Okay, in order for the entire nation of Israel to meet together and sacrifice. And second, Pharaoh never trusted that to be the case at all. Okay. In my career in the corporate corporate world, I learned many interesting insights into human behavior, my own included. And one of those is that what a person tends to suspect of others primarily comes from within the framework of what their own thoughts and behaviors are. That is, if one is cunning and manipulative, they fear others might be cunning and manip manipulative of them. If they are by nature people who are not true to their word, their fear is others will not be true to their word. Okay. Pharaoh knew what he'd do if he'd been in Moses' shoes asking for his people to leave. So Pharaoh suspected that Moses would say whatever he had to say in order to get what he wanted. In this case, it was to get the people of Israel completely free from Egypt. I don't think Pharaoh ever really believed this was going to be a three-day holiday, okay? which is why he risked the well-being of his nation in a virtually unwinnable battle with the God of Israel. Of course, in the end, he was right, wasn't he? Now, the other thing we need to know is that the Sinai Peninsula was Egyptian-held territory. Much like Alaska was U.S. territory before it became a state, the Sinai wasn't part of Egypt proper, but it was controlled by Egypt. Alaska was important to the U.S. for two reasons. As a source of natural resources, oil, and as a strategic military buffer, between North America and the Soviet Union. Again, the same thing for the Sinai. The Sinai was mined as a prime source by Egypt, as a, as a source of copper. Right? And it provided a rather substantial geographic buffer between Egypt proper and the other Middle Eastern nations on the other side of the Sinai. So until Israel had crossed over the Sinai, either onto the Arabian Peninsula or to the east or to the land of Canaan in the north, they were still on Egyptian territory, right? which made them very vulnerable. Now this, of course, is why Pharaoh was free to send his soldiers after Israel. Because if the Sinai had been controlled by some other nation, the presence of Egyptian soldiers would have meant war with whatever nation claimed control over it. Now in verse 3, the word came back to Pharaoh that Israel seemed to be confused in their route and that they were closed in by the wilderness. These are not euphemisms. Okay? Wherever Israel was, they were traveling through a landscape that had them closed in. A, a place that, from a strategic military 
point of view had him trapped. Okay, what kind of terrain could trap the Israelites? Well, certainly not flat and open desert expanses. Okay, we saw in that video this would only be something like a large gorge, a valley, a dry waterway, all right, cut through mountains. Right? It had to be a route that had one way in and one way out with no ability to escape in any other direction. This is not speculation. For sure this was the case because the book of, book of Exodus plainly says so. The speculation only concerns where precisely that place was. Now we're reminded in verse 4 of something that is a constant theme of Exodus that one of the primary purposes of God striking Egypt in all manner of way was so that he would be glorified and that the Egyptians would know that if Jehovah, that it was Jehovah who had the power to do such things. Well, Pharaoh's now informed of what he had suspected all along. Israel was well on its way to permanent relocation. And of course, this infuriated Pharaoh because he felt duped. Now obviously he had held out the barely flickering hope that Israel would return after three days. He really didn't want to risk another round with Moses and his God. Okay. Yet simply by the amount of time Israel was now gone and the route they were taking, it was pretty evident they weren't coming back. So he sent his armies after the Israelites. I mean, was it that Pharaoh meant to destroy Israel now? No. Alright, certainly as retribution and, and as a demonstration of his control, he would have killed thousands of them probably. But his goal was to get them back to Egypt. Back into slavery and servitude to him. That's what he was worried about. He basically said, oh my gosh, I've just let my entire workforce go. We're told that not only did he send some sort a special division of 600 chariots after the Hebrews, but also all the other divisions of every kind. He bet the farm. He sent everything he had after them. Archaeology and Egyptology have shown that Egypt used different kinds of chariots in what was very likely the 18th dynasty period. And this was characterized by using a variety of four or six spoke wheeled chariots. Now this unusual use of two different kinds of chariot wheels occurred only during a very narrow slice of history in Egypt. All right. And that was during the generally accepted time of the Exodus, around 14th century BC. And we're also told that Pharaoh himself went with the army. Now, Let's not overlook a vital ingredient to Pharaoh giving chase to Israel. Jehovah hardened Pharaoh's heart. We've encountered this before. Why would Jehovah do this? To draw the Egyptians to their destruction, which was his plan all along. After the Egyptian army is destroyed at the Red Sea, it will be 300 years before we hear of them troubling Israel again. 
This drawing of Pharaoh to destruction like a, a moth to a flame is a pattern that's going to repeat at Armageddon. Okay, It was utterly senseless for the Pharaoh to take this suicidal action. Right? His own magicians and sorcerers and counselors begged him to leave Israel alone because their God had proved over and over again that he was just too strong. But Pharaoh was so blinded with rage and pride and hatred that he went against all wisdom. Some of that hatred was caused by Pharaoh's own evil inclination. Some of it was caused by the Lord that his purpose would be achieved. Let's fast forward now to a time that I'm reasonably certain is literally just around the corner. Okay. I don't know if this time's a month from now. I don't know if it's a year or ten. I have no idea. Right. But I have little doubt that most of us in this room are going to live to see the events talked about in Ezekiel 38 and 39. Because we're right now in the midst of watching Ezekiel's prophecy of Ezekiel 36 and 37 occurring as I speak. Okay? Open your Bibles to Ezekiel 38. Watch God's pattern repeat. Ezekiel 38. And I'm going to read from Ezekiel 38, verse 1, all the way to Ezekiel 39, verse 8. So follow along with me. This is an exciting, exciting section of the Bible. Ezekiel 38. Ezekiel 38. The word of Adonai came to me. Human being, turn your face towards Gog of the land of Magog, chief prince of Meshech and Tubal and prophesy against him. Say that Adonai Elohim says, I'm against you, Gog, chief prince of Meshech and Tuval. I will turn you around. I will put hooks in your jaws and bring you out with all your army and your horses, your horsemen, all completely equipped. A great horde with breastplates and shields, all wielding swords. Persia, Ethiopia, put are with them, all with breastplates and helmets. Gomer with all his troops. The house of Togomar are in, in, in the far reaches of the north with all its troops. Many peoples are with you. Prepare yourself. Get ready. You and all your crowd gathered around you and take charge of them. After many days have passed, you will be mustered for service. In later years, you will invade the land which has been brought back from the sword gathered out of many peoples, the mountains of Israel. They have been lying in ruins for a long time, but now Israel's been extracted from the peoples, and all of them are living there securely. You will come up like a storm. You will be like a cloud covering the land, you and all your troops, and many other peoples with you. Adonai Elohim says when that day comes, thoughts will well up in your mind. You'll devise this sinister scheme. You'll say, 
I'm going to invade this land of unwalled villages. I will take by surprise these people who are at peace, living securely, all in places without walls, bars, gates. I'll seize the spoil, take the plunder. You will attack the former ruins that are now inhabited and come against the people gathered from the nations who have acquired livestock and other wealth and are living in the central parts of the land. Shiva, Dedan, all the leading merchants of Tarshish will ask you, have you come to seize spoil? Have you assembled your hordes to loot, to carry off silver, gold, livestock, other wealth, to make much plunder? Therefore, human being, prophesy. Tell Gog that Adonai Elohim says this, Won't you be aware of it when my people Israel are living in security? You'll choose just that time to come from your place in the far reaches of the north, you and many peoples with you, all of them on horseback, a huge horde, a mighty army, and you'll invade my people Israel like a cloud covering the land. This will be in the Akhirat Hayamim, the days to come, the end times. And I will bring you against my land so that the Goyim, the nations, the Gentile nations, will know me when before their eyes I am set apart as holy through you, Gog. Adonai Elohim says, I spoke of you long ago through my servants, the prophets of Israel. Back then, they prophesied for many years that I would have you invade them. When that day comes, when Gog invades the land of Israel, says Adonai Elohim, my furious anger will boil up. In my jealousy, in my heated fury, I speak. When that day comes, there will be a great earthquake in the land of Israel so that the fish in the sea, the birds in the air, the wild beasts, all the reptiles creeping on the ground and every human being there in the land will tremble before me. Mountains will fall, cliffs will crumble, every wall will crash to the ground. I will summon a sword against him throughout all my mountains, says Adonai Elohim. Every man will wield his sword against his brother. I will judge him with a plague and with blood. I will cause torrential rain to fall on him, his troops and the many peoples with him, along with huge hailstones, fire and sulfur. I will show my greatness and holiness making myself known in the sight of many nations, then they will know that I am Adonai. Moving on into chapter 39. So you human being prophesy against Gog. Say that Adonai Elohim says, I am against you, Gog, chief prince of Meshach and Tuval. I will turn you around, lead you on, bring you from the far reaches of the north against the mountains of Israel. But then I will knock your bow out of your left hand and make your arrows drop from your right. You will fall on the mountains of Israel, you, your troops, all the peoples with you. I will give you to be eaten up by all kinds of birds of prey and wild animals. You will fall in the open field, for I have spoken. So Adonai Elohim. I will also send fire against Magog and against those living securely on the coastlands. Then they will know that I am Adonai. I will make my holy name known among my people Israel. I will not allow my holy name to be profaned any longer. Then the Goyim, the Gentiles, will know that I am Adonai, the Holy One in Israel. Yes, this is coming. It will be done, says Adonai Elohim. This is the day about which I have spoken.
the pattern of the Lord literally baiting. What does he say here? I'm going to set a hook in your jaws. This pattern of the Lord baiting those marked for destruction into battle against his people. A battle in which the Lord, by his supernatural might, will defeat the enemy is repeated here. It's exactly what he just did with Egypt. He baited them right into the sea, into the Red Sea, and killed them. Just as Pharaoh was so obsessed with Israel that all reason was thrown to the wind. So all these nations mentioned in these verses of Ezekiel won't be able to control themselves. I mean, God asks, I mean, are you coming down to take their spoils? What is it you're coming down for? It's a rhetorical question. What's here? Answer, we don't know. Nothing. Between their own evil thoughts and their plans, and the Lord setting their plans like concrete in their minds, destruction is their destiny, and the Lord is seeing to it. I mean, please see the bitter tweet, the bittersweet truth in this. The Lord will mark some for life and some for death. Some will be a ransom for others. The Lord will make distinctions. He will sacrifice those who do not belong to him for the sake of those who do. And while on the one hand it is his will that all be saved, on the other he knows who will be and who won't. And those who won't are going to be hardened in such a way as to essentially commit mass suicide on an unimaginable scale by going against the Lord God at Armageddon. Now consider this. Who in the world loves death so much that they'd happily die? Happily see their children strap bombs onto their tiny bodies and their entire nation be decimated if it meant destroying God's people, Israel. Aren't you watching it on television every night? That's right, Muslims. The core group of those who will lead the unbelieving world into self-destruction has been revealed if we'll just open our eyes. It'll be Islam. Oh, certainly Russia and its completely godless society and possibly China also with a society based upon rejection of any spiritual reality will be a part of this great battle for their own good reasons. But it's Islam that has nearly limitless supplies of petrodollars and of people who are anxious to martyr themselves and their families in suicide bombings and in battle simply to destroy any last vestige of Israel and Judeo-Christianity. I saw an interview a week ago with one of these well-known military TV analysts. 
you'd recognize him in a heartbeat. And the person asked him about what was going on, and he was silent for a minute, and he said, you have to understand something. He said, everything that is happening is totally irrational. He said, none of it makes any sense. He said, it makes no sense why Hezbollah just out of the blue attacked Israel. It makes no, it makes no sense, the response. None of it makes any sense. He said, so sometimes he said, I feel like a fool trying to sit here and tell you why somebody would do this and what they might do because none of it makes any sense. It's insanity. Pharaoh knew exactly where to find the Israelites camped at the seashore that very spot that Jehovah had led them he was suckering them in it must have been just before sunset that the Hebrew watchmen spotted that Egyptian army off into the, off into the distance and they flew into hysteria people being people naturally the first thing they did was to seek somebody to blame. Moses. And they sarcastically confront him, wanting to know if the only reason that he brought him out here is because there wasn't a sufficient amount of cemetery space back in Egypt. I mean, if Moses didn't know before they left Egypt, he now knew that in the unlikely event that they survived Pharaoh's army, this group of people was going to bring him little joy. They were whiners, they were ungrateful, and they were of little courage. I mean, can't you picture Moses standing in front of the elders of these people as they point those bony, withered fingers at him, reminding him that they never really wanted to leave Egypt in the first place? After all, slavery's not so bad, right? I mean, better to serve Pharaoh and survive than to die the painful death out here. Translation. Better to serve the evil that we're familiar with and live the life we're comfortable with than to follow God in faith in what to us seems as uncertainty. Moses isn't shaken. He fires right back at them. Don't be afraid. Stand fast. See Jehovah's deliverance of you today. Moses goes to God. He tells Moses, so why are you crying to me? He says, is Jehovah irritated at Moses? All right, that he's approached him with a problem? Of course not. I mean, it's almost as though God fully expected Moses to already know that the first step to solve this problem was to simply keep moving forward. Don't stop. Go forward. Go forward. God will make a way. Okay. Alfred Edersheim says in his tremendous work, The History of the Old Testament, there are times when even prayer itself seems to represent unbelief and only to go forward in calm assurance is our duty. How true. Balaam kept going back to God, hoping for a different answer every time. One more time. One, just, just one more time. Maybe God will do what I want this time. 
I mean, we find ourselves in challenging situations that seem to result from doing the very thing that only hours earlier we were so confident was a God-ordained action. Suddenly an unexpected choice confronts us. And now, do we go forward or do we pause? Of course, going to God in prayer can't ever be a poor choice, but apparently, when our duty before God is already crystal clear, we're to go forward as we pray. This is opposed, as opposed to stopping and rethinking whether or not we should have begun this journey in the first place. Notice an interesting response by God in verse 16. He tells Moses, to hold your staff high, stretch out your hand. Just as back in Egypt, when Moses spoke, he spoke in God's authority. Remember earlier when God told Moses that when Moses spoke, it was as if God spoke? Moses was already empowered by God with his power to do what was necessary to carry out God's will. I mean, this is contrasted with verse 17, where God says, But I, Yehovah, will make Pharaoh's heart hard. God empowers us for whatever tasks he gives us. No more, no less than needed. Of course, we never hold within us more than the tiniest fraction of the infinite power that's Yehovah. Some things... God reserves strictly for himself. God never asked Moses to do the thing that God and God alone has determined will be his sole doing, changing a heart for the good or bad. And church, when we're going about the business of spreading the gospel, we need to keep that in mind. God has never and he will never empower us with the ability to change a human heart. We can neither soften a heart nor harden a heart. Our job isn't to convert anybody. Our job is to speak and demonstrate with our lives the truth of the gospel. Next we're told in verse 19 that the messenger of God changed position from leading Israel to being stationed between Israel and the Egyptian army. Now, in almost every incident, uh, instance in Exodus 14 that our Bibles say, Lord or God or Adonai, in fact, the original Hebrew is God's personal name, Yehovah. Only a couple of times in this entire chapter do we ever find a reference to God as anything but Yehovah. And here, however, we encounter one of these few times. The Hebrew that is translated angel of God or angel of, or messenger of God most of the time is Malach Elohim or Malach Yehovah. I, I wish I fully understood the difference between Malach Elohim and Malach Yehovah, that is the angel of God versus the angel of Yehovah. But there is a difference. 
In this verse, the Malach Elohim, the angel of God, is clearly identified as that cloud that was leading Israel. Hmm. Sometime later, this visible presence of God would rest upon the Holy of Holies in the wilderness tabernacle. There, it was called the Shekinah, or more correctly, the Shekinah. Or as we typically call it in the church, the glory of God. Now, this is the stuff that entire denominations have been built on. What exactly is the angel of God as opposed to the angel of Jehovah as opposed to the Shekinah? What's clear enough is that God's word assigns different terms to each of these visible presences of him. Okay. Are these just different names for the same thing? I'm not sure, but I have my doubts. Somehow I just don't think God fits into all these nice, neat boxes and characterizations that we humans build for him. So what do we know about this cloud, this presence of God that has been leading Israel, but now suddenly moves to divide the camps? of Israel and Egypt from each other. More precisely, God is being a hedge of protection around Israel. We're told something that should be quite familiar to us by now in verse 20. That the cloud gave darkness to the Egyptians and light to Israel. Do you remember our Hebrew lessons back in Genesis 1 where God created darkness and light? And that the words chosen really weren't about nighttime and daytime. They weren't about visual light or visual darkness. The Hebrew word used for darkness there was choshech, a very negative word. It denoted a type of blindness. An, an evil and obstructing force, a spiritual darkness. For light, the Hebrew was or, which referred to enlightenment, a positive spiritual force, something which emitted truth and goodness. These terms aim towards something that's far more than merely the presence of or absence of visible light, like from a light bulb or an oil lamp, or even from a star, from the sun. Okay. We saw those terms again just before the Exodus as part of the ninth stroke, the ninth plague upon Egypt. When Egypt was plunged into a horrifying three days of spiritual darkness, while at the same time the Israelites up in the land of Goshen we're experiencing or enlightenment, God's light. Okay. Well, here we see, as concerns the cloud, the same two terms again. Once again, God put Hoshech upon Egypt, Pharaoh's armies, and or upon Israel. But what's kind of startling if we think about it, is that this spiritual darkness and spiritual light are coming from the same source simultaneously. 
from this cloud, from this angel of God, this almost impossible to explain presence of God, on the one hand comes darkness for some, and on the other hand, light for his people. For those who oppose him, darkness and death. For those who are his own, light and life. This is not an image of God that we're used to. And frankly, many of us aren't particularly comfortable with it. Some like to say, well, yeah, that is the Old Testament God. But the New Testament God's different. Sorry, that's not the case. We're reminded scores of times in both the Old and the New Testament that God never changes. What we must keep in mind is that Yehovah has determined what what belonging to him means and what it does not mean. And whether in the past, the present, or in the future, what is not his will be eternally destroyed. What is his will be eternally existent and present with him. There is no in-between. There is no appeasement. There is no compromise. and There is no changing his mind. And by the way, let's explore just what changing means when referring to God. His never changing refers to his attributes and his character as reflected in his principles and his governed dynamics. It's not changing if he grants you a healing from a disease, but he doesn't grant it to me. It's not changing that God instructed Joshua to kill or drive out all of those who occupied the land he set aside for his people, but does not instruct Jesus to drive out or kill the Romans who occupied the Holy Lands when he was alive. It's a matter of timing. It's a matter that at a prescribed time in history, and hear this, Jesus will drive out and kill all those who have no place in the land of God, won't he? He will destroy all those worldwide who oppose God, even if only in their hearts, in a great battle we call Armageddon. And now in verse 21 comes one of the most, if not the most, dramatic moments in the entire Bible, parting of the Red Sea. Israel's trapped on an enormous beach. The Yom Suf on the one side, the Egyptians on the other. They see their destination of refuge on the other side of those impassable waters, but there's no means to get there. Israel braces now for the worst and sets about mourning before anything happens because they know that death for some and return to slavery for the remainder is at hand. But the Lord is going to make a way where there is no way. Moses stretches out his hand in the process of dividing the deep sea that blocks. Israel's path begins. An east wind begins to blow. Please remember back to our first day so many months ago when I told you to watch out for the word east. Whenever you see it, underline it. 
because you're going to find out that East has significant spiritual implications and often it involves the presence of God or a miracle. So all night an east wind blows. The waters are split. The sea bottom is dried. It's made firm and passable for the three million fugitives sitting trapped on the beach at the edge of the sea. I am convinced that this great horde was about to pass through the Gulf of Aqaba. Now, let us now and forever put to rest the liberal and secular notion that if the exodus happened at all, the Hebrews crossed a shallow mud flat back up on the edge of the land of Goshen. Because if that's true, then the Bible is a gross exaggeration at the least and a liar at the worst. We're told in the Torah that the walls of water built up on their right and on their left. That after the Israelites walked through this dried sea bottom, that the Egyptians pursued them. And that the waters returned and drowned every last Egyptian soldier. It must have been that the Israelites crossed in the wee hours of the morning, well before daybreak. Otherwise, the Egyptians, even from a distance, would have seen it happening. And it was a several-hour journey for those people, a, whole, a distance of around eight miles to cross. But once his people were safely on the other side, God suddenly broke his light upon the darkness that had entangled and immobilized Egypt for several hours and it had kept them from attacking Israel. And as the Egyptians realized what had happened and they set out in hot pursuit of Israel, something threw a panic into them. They were so terrified that the soldiers determined to flee for their lives because as it says in verse 25, Jehovah makes war for them, Israel, against Egypt. Okay. Egypt now knew God's glory all right, but nobody lived to tell about it. The scene here is a shadow, a type, a model of what's going to happen in those last moments of this present world when the darkness, this, this ever-deepening shroud of evil that pervades it and rules over it will become darker and darker, and then suddenly, when only a few are expecting it, all's going to be plunged into heavenly light. Satan and his demons and all that belong to him will not be able to stand in the light of God's presence. We, we've all heard that statement about Satan and his demons being unable to stand in the light of holiness, but perhaps what we haven't quite realized is just what that means. Which is this. It is that those in union with darkness will be burned up by the same exact light that those who have come out of darkness and are now in union in Christ that will be saved by. As an aside, it says that not one of Pharaoh's men survived. Did Pharaoh die here? Along with his troops? We're not told. Many think he did. And there is some evidence in Egyptian historical documents that during the supposed time of the Exodus, 
The pharaoh died and Egypt went into a terrible decline that lasted for decades. It's not explained just why that pharaoh's death and the sudden collapse of Egypt were tied together. But if indeed this were referring to the pharaoh of the Exodus, it would explain a lot. Egypt, now without its leader, the rightful heir to the throne, remember, his son, having died, pass overnight, and a quarter of the population leaving all at once, Egypt would have collapsed. This chapter concludes with the words that Israel saw all that God did and they held him in awe. But it also says that they had a change in heart. And in addition to trusting God, they now trusted Moses. Yeah, well, just for a time. Because it wouldn't be but a few more days before they lost faith again and all the whining and all the doubt resurfaced. I mean, God's people just haven't changed a whole lot in 3,500 years, have they? We'll get into some more of this next week.